Hey there. This podcast is brought to you from aboutmeditation.com. Check out our free How to Meditate mini course. Five easy lessons that teach you how to meditate in minutes. www.aboutmeditation.com Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 4 of the One Mind Podcast. I'm excited about this show today. I interview Andy Kelly, otherwise known as the Boston Buddha. Before we jump in, if you enjoy the show today, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review after you listen. That will help us get exposed to a lot more people. So I first met Andy Kelly a little over a year ago, soon after I moved here to Boston. So in addition to teaching meditation at a pace and on a schedule that's pretty hard to imagine, Andy's a hardworking dad and a husband. Andy's a diehard Boston sports fan. He comes from a very large Irish Catholic family. His wife describes him as a meat and potatoes meditator and the blue collar Buddha. I love that. I've never heard anything like that before. And you'll learn more about why she calls him that in the interview. But as unpretentious and easygoing as Andy is, he's clearly a gifted meditation teacher. He has a great story, which I think a lot of you are going to resonate with, and he's doing great work. I think you're going to pick up some cool tips from today's show, particularly his five-minute email meditation exercise, which he teaches to his executive clients. So I hope you enjoy the show. Let's get right into the interview. So Andy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on here. Thanks so much for having me, Morgan. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's jump right in and tell everyone a little bit about your story. How long have you been teaching meditation? How did you come to teach meditation? Just share with us your origin story. Sure, sure. Um, I've been meditating, I like to say, every single day for the past almost, it'll be 10 years in August. Nice. But off and on, probably for you know the last 10 to 12 years. Mm-hmm. And it really started out of nothing heavily traumatic in my life, aside from the fact that I wasn't the best sleeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could fall asleep easy at night, but I'd find myself waking up at 2, 3 in the morning, not able to put myself back to sleep. Mm-hmm. So what I thought was the origin of me getting into meditation was because of a lack of being able to sleep. Then obviously you, you start to see the, the complex layers that surround that, which is the stress and the anxiety and the stuff that I couldn't see because I wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so I worked in broadcast production and television production. And I think in your 20s, you know, you do that thing where you're trying to climb the corporate ladder. And right. I, I had what I perceived was a very cool job. 
but you're working all the time, 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. You're always going from one story to the next. And then it seemed like you put out everyone else's fire at work and then you get home and you have nothing left in the tank. You right. have basically nothing left for the people that need it the most and the people that you end up taking, taking advantage of a little bit. So I think about 10 years ago, my wife gave me a book by Deepak Chopra. It was called Perfect Health. I guess it was a, a book that kind of started my whole origin of how I got into meditation myself. Because the way I looked at it was, it wasn't like, it's not a book I even recommend to people now when they want to get into meditation, but it had enough, a little bit on it to get a guy like me. I consider myself very Catholic, very Irish, just an average everyday working guy. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get someone like me to sit and meditate, and sit in a dark room and, and convince me that it will save me time and make me happier and help me sleep. You have basically got to do two things. You got to prove to me there's like no like cultish <laughs> storyline to it. Yeah. And you have to prove prove it with a little bit of science. You know, I'm that type of skeptical type A personality. Mm-hmm. And so here in this book, a little section on meditation that was able to do that. Now, granted, this is a long time ago. And the avalanche of, of science that now supports, you know, meditation is huge. It's incredible, um, right? Yeah, but at the time it was like monks. So, you know, we, we studied Buddhist monks and great, their, their minds would be different than mine. But it was enough to say, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I've tried pretty much everything else. So I went uh, at the time, Deepak Chopra had a center in New York called, in the Dream Hotel, he had a Chopra center. And I, and I decided to go and spend the weekend there learning how to meditate. And I remember walking in, everyone has their jasmine tea, and they're all yogis and, and nurse practitioners and physicians, and mostly women, and then me drinking my Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And I see them all kind of looking at me, and I know they're judging, and they're not supposed to be, and I'm saying to myself, what have I got myself into? Mm. Um, so I was really not prepared, I think, for what I was getting myself into. But you pay money to take these courses, so I went in with as open a mind as I could sat there, learned how to meditate. And I remember coming back the next day and we talk about experiences and everyone had these pretty deep experiences to share. And I sat in the back of the room pretty much constricted thinking, oh my gosh, all this guy did was teach me how many thoughts I'm having during the day. Like I had no idea that my mind was going that fast, that it was riddled with these thoughts and these stories I was telling myself. I always start by telling that part of the story because sometimes people come in that are like me to one of my classes and I want to make sure that they have the clear expectation that you're probably not going to see ponies or rainbows or, <laughs> or, or feel like you're wrapped in this like blanket of bliss that it, it really is a mind training. Yeah. Well, you know, long story short is I stuck with it mostly because my wife then started to notice that I was sleeping through the night. And so for that reason alone, I, I kept with it. I said, I don't care how it works. I don't want to know. I just want it for me. It was all me, me, me. I'm just going to keep meditating. And if I can get six to eight hours of sleep a night, then I can handle pretty much any stress at work. And about a month of doing it every single day. So all I would do is I'd meditate for 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon. And I guess about a a month in, that's when I started to notice the real calming effects, Mm. the subtleties to the practice how I was becoming more mentally flexible outside of meditation. I was like, wow, this is like the best ever. And then of course you go up and down with your practice and you hit those roadblocks and you feel great 
or you stop, right? You, you feel yeah. great and then you stop again and you think you don't need it. And it took, you know, on and off for two years for me to finally say, okay, this is now a non-negotiable for me as of August of 2005. It became a non-negotiable where I said, I'm going to meditate every single day so I can be more happier in my own life. A lot of it had to do with my perception of what I thought happiness was and when I wasn't searching for it anymore or wasn't trying to climb the corporate ladder, that's when I started to notice that I was naturally happy mm. or at least able to deal with the stress of the day without always thinking to myself, oh, here it is again, or this always happens to me type of negative, you know, that, that guide to my negative type of thinking. Right, right. Two questions quickly, before, and then sure. let's pick back up right sure. here. When you said that you found this happiness in relationship to one, the calm presence, but also not climbing the corporate ladder. My, my first question is, do you relate your initiating a meditation practice to throttling back on that whole ambition to climb the corporate ladder? That was my first question. And the second question was, you mentioned the mental flexibility that you started to experience from meditation. And I think that's very interesting. I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about that because I that's certainly been some of my experience too. I don't always hear everyone talk about that. So I'd love to hear about yeah. that. In terms of throttling back, what I think I found is that for me, I started to realize that all of this stuff that I wanted, that I longed for, the stuff that I thought would make me happy, this type of success that I found at work, that cycle of, mm -hmm. of, of suffering that I was creating in my own life, I realized it was like I liken it to driving a car as fast as I can with the emergency brake on. <laughs> right. I got there, but like they say, if you bring this, if you bring, you know, my body to a car shop, they would say, ah, yeah, this isn't going to last very long. Right. So it was more about figuring out how to balance. So my drive, I think, stayed the same. If not, it shifted in what my perspective on what success was, I guess. Mm -hmm. My own perspective shifted. And I think that was a combination of, yes, the, the, the meditation, but looking at my life from a totally detached point of view Got or it. just a different point of view. So finding that balance, it was hard, takes years, mm -hmm. but I think I've gotten to the point where now I can say that I'm happy with the balance that I have in my life. And part of that's taking charge of, of who you are. And part of that's letting go of who you think you should be. Mm. So there's that aspect. And then the, the second part of the question was... You described starting to experience this benefit of deeper mental flexibility. So I'll sometimes describe, describe it as like we're born perfect, whole, these complete beings, and then we're conditioned from the day the doctor kind of slaps us on the butt. Don't even choose our names. We get all these masks and conditioning that are kind of built on top of them, all these layers. And I felt like the mental flexibility that I was gaining within the first 30 days was peeling back some of those layers where when I was giving 100% at the office, I was giving 100%, not 120, so I didn't have that extra 20 for at home. I was giving 100% and then kind of peeling back and saying the real me kind of came out. And that mental flexibility said, you know what, you've done, you've given 100%. Is there a way that you can give any more? And that was, to me, that was no. The mental flexibility in the sense of, of my job shifted, mm -hmm. but also I think in terms of how I was able to see the moments. You have those situations where somebody comes in, they come into your office, you kind of know what they want. 
you're already judging what, why they need a day off or what they need. And, you know, all these ego thoughts come into your mind. Right. And instead it was letting me, it was kind of giving me a half second before it's like time slowed down. And I know it's not an accurate description, but it was almost like I had a half second to say, well, you're judging. Right. Can you step out of that? Right. And that's when I was able to see my choices that type of mental flexibility mm-hmm. I think I'm talking more about. Do you find the same? Absolutely. I like the way you're framing it. The way I would describe that or the way I describe it is I think about it in terms of critical self-reflection and objectifying the thought stream or my own patterns of habituation. And exactly like you said, meditation gives me a certain space where I have a choice. You use that word choice and I relate to it completely. It gives me Maybe it's just a fraction of a moment, but it's enough not for me to react. And in that space, everything becomes possible. Yeah, it comes back to that Viktor Frankl quote, right? Uh, that beautiful quote that he has, uh, the, you know, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies, I'm going to bastardize it, but it lies our freedom to choose. If we're aware of it, if Be- we're beautiful. awake. Beautiful, yeah. So it's like that aspect of the mental flexibility, we as human beings have this amazing ability to be able to Mm self-reflect while we're in the moment. And so meditation was harnessing that ability for me and helping me develop it on a daily basis. Right. All right. So you got to this point where you were stopping and starting and then you, you just, it sounded like you reached a deeper level of stability and commitment with your practice. Uh, Well, two things happened. One of my uh, bosses uh, that ran the production company got sick uh, and then soon after passed away. And he had one son and I had one son at the time. And we talked a lot about not being around for them and really being there. And I found that even as a young kid that I might be with him, but I wasn't really there. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was often on my laptop or, yeah. or doing other things. And so in August of 2005, uh, shortly before he passed away, I made a commitment to myself that I was a better person meditating. And that type of consistency was going to take some discipline. I wasn't a morning person. Um, I decided that I would become a morning person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get up early, but not certainly not as early as I get up now. And I would find the time because I knew after that, my kids get up now and my day is pretty much gone. I think it took about five years of doing it just myself before I said, you know what? You know, I approach everything as like a, as a producer or a director, fortunately or unfortunately, that deals a lot with control. You know, we talk about the the paradox of, of meditation being loosening the control. Mm-hmm. And here I am saying, I need more control. And it, it really was for me taking some of the stuff that I do as a producer director, which is if I go into a space, I need to know what the heating system's like, what the lighting situation is, and mm-hmm. we want to control that environment. And hearing from people that I, that I did a pretty decent job at taking complex information boiling it down so actors and other people on on the crew could understand it. And I thought, well, what if I were to take a lot of these ancient teachings and kind of boil them down? So I started doing little things, you know, in the office. I started doing little things in my community. And I've been doing this full time now for six years Mm -hmm. where I decided that I could use my unique gifts, which, you know, I believe are to be help people understand that they can be more successful that they can overall, though, be happier in their lives. Right. Just by doing this one little thing that you really, once you get a taste of it, 
I don't think when you start to understand why you're doing it, it becomes harder to skip. Yeah. You know, like I can skip running, I can skip yoga, but I can't skip my meditation. It's just not, it's a not, like I said, it's a non-negotiable for me now. I spent a, a fair amount of that time in those five years studying with Deepak Chopra at the time in 2005 to 2009. And mm-hmm. I was certified in 2009, uh, studying with Deepak Chopra, his colleague who has since passed away, David Simon, who was the neurologist and, and headed up the science side of that outfit. One of my teachers, you know, who kind of took me under his wing in 2007, David G., who was the uh, the head of the Chopra Center for for the 10 years that I studied there. And I don't know what he saw in me, but he's still become one of my very good friends and everybody loves him. Mm. Everyone. <laughs> I don't find anyone that doesn't love him or his voice or his guided meditations. I just saw he published a book, right? He uh, wrote a book, The Secrets of Happiness. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, no, se- sorry, Secrets of Meditation. He's just such a great guy. And in that book, I look at that book and I often will give it as a gift too, because what I like about that is the same kind of approach I have to teaching meditation, that there's a lot of ways to meditate and no one way should be seen as the right way. And so he kind of pre- presents this as his story, but also the toolbox. And what happened when he tried? It's almost like a, if you're familiar with uh, my, my wife's company, d- Does America's Test Kitchen, where they cook, mm-hmm. but they also bring the science into the cooking. Mm. I kind of I liken it to that, where I'll say, well, I tried chanting, and this is what happened with me. So I moved on to this, and this is what happened to me. Not once saying that it was wrong or a different way, but everything from you know mantra-based meditations to, to CPT to pretty much tried it all, yeah, and then distilled it in this awesome book. I can't say enough great things about him as a teacher. And I think that's a really wonderful approach to meditation. That's in in my own experience, I practiced one approach to meditation for about 15 years with my primary teacher. But then after that, I felt the need to just try lots of different styles of meditation. And that's been incredibly rich. I think once you have a foundation of a practice and you have an essence that you can connect with, then it's almost like there's different faces or different complexions of the same essential truth or same essential experience, but the different practices, I found that to be an amazingly rich experience. So like the way I look at that, like I kind of identify with a lot of what you're saying. So I did what I would call a focused meditation or a mantra based meditation Mm -hmm. for four or five years before I tried anything else. Yeah. And for me, I think I had the same, maybe the same as you, where I didn't know what was going on in my mind. I, I didn't know how scattered my attention was. And I needed that type of one-pointed objective focus mm-hmm. to kind of harness all of that energy, distill it down so I could relax and focus. And that took me a good four or five years to be able to really get the hang of that. During that same time period, you know, I kind of look at my teaching as a stool where I'm heavy mantra-based influences of, of Hindu and the Vedanta. And then a more mindfulness-based approach, doing a little bit of studying at the, the Center for Mindfulness, getting to participate in their um, mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Yeah, We have the mindfulness, we have the, the focus meditation or the mantra-based meditation. And then curiosity led me to just finding my own type of practice, mm-hmm. which is a combination now of the two and now provides that third kind of stool where it ends up being more 
compassionate, more spiritual in nature because I have those two to help me with my foundation. I, of course, was curious enough to try TM, done chanting, all types of compassion meditations, and they're all great. But what I try to explain to people is that meditation should feel like your favorite pair of jeans. You put them on, they're comfortable to you. Yeah. But they might not be comfortable to the person sitting next to you. That's a great metaphor. I love that. Yeah, that's what I try to uh, convey. It's like once you find it, like you and I found it, then you can explore. But Absolutely. But, but it takes a little while to sit on the days you don't feel like sitting. And those to me are the most mindful moments. I've always believed this. And I, I wonder if you agree. It sounds like you do. Do you feel it's important that people, when they're starting out, they pick a practice and they stick with it for a certain amount of time just to really find some stability, a base? And I know sometimes in the beginning people have to, they have to find one that they actually like, but often you just don't know enough when you're starting out. You don't really know what you're going to like. So I, I often start people as simple as possible and I just encourage them to stay for as long as they can a year, give it some time so they can gain some some real traction. Yeah, I, I do. For me, it took a long time. I always joke that I'm not as spiritually advanced as other people, and, and certainly other people seem to get it. Uh, I think women tend to get it a lot quicker. I'm mm-hmm, not, mm-hmm. I, I just think that they're better at expressing themselves. So they're, you're able to have a better uh, back and forth. Maybe a little um, less pride. <laughs> Yeah, but that could be it too. But I also feel like at least the guys, and I'll even add in kids and te- you know, kids 10 and up, teenage boys, they really resonate with a mantra-based practice. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a mantra-based practice, but some type of focus meditation where the objective is to focus on your breath. Clearly knowing at some point your mind's not going to want to do that. Mm-hmm. And to stay with that for 30 days, I say, if you can do it every day for 30 days, then let's talk again. Because at that point, I know that they're serious, that they are willing to sit on those days. They don't feel like it. But if you don't give it the time that it needs to kind of take root, it's not going to expand, you know, expand back into your day. Mm-hmm. It's not going to branch out so that you have those mindful moments when you're not meditating. So yeah, I would say pick one and then stick with it for 30 days. So there's sometimes, I don't know if it's a mistake, but we give the choice of going from you know, a mantra-based practice to the breath. Mm-hmm. And for me, in the beginning, the breath was just too abstract. Right. And a lot of the times, you kind of get mixed messages. You know, a lot of the times when I first started doing yoga, even in college, the classes that I took, I'd be in the back of the room and, and you'd hear somebody say, just let go of all your thoughts or let go of the breath. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. How do I do that? And not only that, I can't let go of my thoughts. So I must be broken. I'm never doing this again. So it kind of, you know, that narrow-minded approach didn't yeah. serve me very well in, the, in those times. We need to know that thoughts are part of the process, that there is an objective that you can have when you're meditating. And for me, it's that focus, right? You have the, I always say it's, there's a one point of focus and that could be a mantra, the breath, a visual cue. It doesn't have to be a mantra, but there's always a focus. And then at some point, the mind wanders and it has to wander because our job in meditation is from my perspective is to become more aware. And the more aware I can become that I'm distracted, the easier it is for me to make a choice to come back to my point of focus or keep telling the story in my head or keep being distracted. But at least I'm aware enough that I know I have a choice. Mm -hmm. 
And when you keep doing that over and over, if you can convey that in the simplest of ways of your focus, your mind wanders, you become aware, you refocus. And you go through that circle every time you meditate. If you can hook somebody in right with that type of style, I find that they are able to let go of what their expectations were, which were, I want to get rid of all my thoughts. Right. Right. I want to, I want to shut down. Or even, you know, I can't meditate because there's too much noise. Right. right. The noise becomes your awareness of that distraction. Now you have a choice. You can judge the noise or you can come back to the breath. All right. So I want to ask you a couple questions about your teaching work. But before we shift into that, just to wrap up a little bit about your own story and your own practice, for you personally now, what's your favorite thing about meditation? What, what do you love most about it? You know, what's the most comfortable brand of blue jeans you're wearing? So just to talk about the structure and the process, because that pretty much hasn't changed in the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. The morning is a mantra based meditation because that's usually when my to-do lists are going in my head and I'm not necessarily awake enough to clue my body and to use my body, so to speak, as a barometer to how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. So I do a, a, a strict, uh, not a strict, but a mantra-based practice in the morning. And then in the afternoons, I do a between 15 to 20 minute kind of what I call like recharging my iPhone type of meditation where I sit and I do a mindfulness-based practice where I start with the breath in the body and then I start to notice what it is that I'm feeling, what it is that I'm thinking. I give it a quick little label. I try not to judge it and I come back to the breath. So it's a more mindfulness getting more in tune with my body in the afternoons and also recharging. Mm -hmm. So to encapsulate that structure into what is the type of blue jeans that I'm wearing, um, the goal for me is not so much what goes on in those meditations. It's really how fully I'm able to connect in the moment when I'm done, how fully I'm able to extend this connection, this listening, this flow outside of meditation. So F fantastic. Do you find that that's evolving in yourself and your capacity for that? Are you, do you notice over time that the way you're inhabiting this presence you're describing is that? Are you feeling good about that? Uh, the, it's rich. It's complex. There are so many layers to it. Yeah, I'm, I, I get excited until I start to notice that I'm excited, right? right. And then I'm out. And then I'm out of the moment. <laughs> so it's great until you know we have our, our our little teachers. So I would say that it makes it easier to meditate. That's for sure, and it mm -hmm. makes it easier to connect with other people trying to do do the same thing. But it certainly opens up my attention, so it's more open. Mm -hmm. more moments are strung together i think where i'm really there i'm really listening i'm not thinking about what i need to do later or not ruminating about something that i forgot to do what kind of people come to you to learn meditation if you could give us give everyone a sense of who you work with who are your clients what's the spectrum of people you're teaching meditation and also why do they come to you what are some of the primary reasons that people want to learn meditation? Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head right at the very beginning. I, I think a lot of people, when they come to me, they're coming to me because, you know, their life's not perfect. They have a lot of stress. A lot of the times it's too much on their plate and not enough of them there, too, not enough of the resources that they have. Parents tend to come to me. During yeah. my day, I see yeah. so many different types of people, but I like them all. I like all the classes I teach. So like, I'll give you an example of just yesterday. So yesterday I start off in a school. So I teach a morning mindfulness course 
to grades three through five. I'm actually in all of the Milton public schools for the past over five years now. Um, So for our European listeners, what's the age group there? So I always say I'd love it to be 10 and above, but I do teach a lot more activity-based material in the kids' classes. So Mm -hmm. I do grades three, unless they have a sibling in grade two or one. And then I'll take the sibling too, because a lot of it is trying to learn to connect and get along with the people in their lives. Mm. So I find that important, but I uh, go all the way up to high school. The age ages range from like um, 10 to 18. Yeah. 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 Sure. That, uh, that's fair. I'd say even eight to 18, eight but to yeah. 18. Got it. But I, well, you know, personally when somebody like a parent will often say, you know, I want my kids to meditate. If I teach them privately, I always, part of what's in the contract is that the kid one wants to, because mm. if they don't, it's a waste of time. Yeah. And one of the parents has to take the class with the kid. So we're cultivating the parents' ability to cope with the stress of the kid and also the kid wanting to connect more fully with their own impulsivity, their own distractions. So a little bit of of that comes into play where I'll work one-on-one with parents and their kids. But for the most part, I teach a lot of guys just like me, Mm -hmm. average, everyday guys i'll spend a fair amount of time in corporations during the week so i'll go to maybe one or two every couple of weeks i'll go to a different corporation to run what i call an awareness in the workplace series mm-hmm. where the goal is to get them to harness their attention so they can start to understand that the stories that they're telling aren't helping them get their work done any faster or, or, or better and kind of teaching them to get out of their own way so they can work more creatively and more productively. And then at nights, I, I do teach classes at yoga studios. What do you find are like in the high schools and then in the corporate context, what are the main questions you get from mm-hmm. people? And two questions, what do you find challenging about teaching in those respective environments? And what do you find rewarding about teaching in those environments? It's easier for me to teach in a corporate environment because I have some background in there. Yeah. So a lot of the times if I'm going into a corporate structure, so we'll just separate it. We'll say corporate adult and then school teachers, kids. Um, From the corporate structure, it's more teaching them. They're all stressed. They're all overly connected. Mm -hmm. And my job is to not go in there and be the health and wellness guy because I am that guy 12 years ago in the back of the room that's rolling his eyes saying, I don't want to be here. You're wasting my time. Right. Right. So I'm aiming at them. So that's like my core audience. So I use a lot of humor to kind of break some of that up. I'll pretend that we're all going to hold hands or something just to kind of kind of get them off their, <laughs> their, their toes a little bit. And they seem to enjoy that. But I think what I try to teach is that I don't go in saying that I'm a health and wellness type of expert. Yeah. I, I think sometimes it's not taken seriously. Right. I, I go in there and say, hey, let's teach you how to manage your energy. You have a certain amount of energy through the day. And you can use that to refuel or you can use it to take away. And a lot of that has to do with, do they want to let the stories take away their personal energy, the stuff that they're constantly complaining about or constantly thinking about? Do they want that to waste some of their mental energy or do they want to take 20 minutes and focus and then come out of there more refreshed and relaxed? But at the same time, they're also strengthening their attentional networks to start to notice when they start to complain or start to tell those stories. So I I go in it with with a more 
energy management the same way you would with exercise. Yeah. Just given how popular it's starting to become in the workplace, are you finding a greater receptivity? And also, I love what you just described. It's almost the way you described it. It's kind of like, it's not how you think of going in and teaching meditation somewhere in a kind of kumbaya context. It's like, in a certain way, what you described was really helping people fundamentally shift their mindset towards the whole reason they're there from kind of a deficit perspective to more the glass is half full or an abundance perspective. Sounds like some very deep work you're doing with people. That's kind of you to say. I don't think of it as deep work. I literally go in and and maybe this is a, a good time to explain like from the businessman that tells me that he's an executive and he has too much going on to even focus. And, I, and I'll say, okay, well, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes and I can teach you in a, what I call an email meditation. I'll sit with them and I'll say, okay, so I want you to focus on your email. And at some point when you're focusing on your email, you're going to navigate away to another site because you got to drop a link in and you're going to get distracted by March Madness or whatever it is. And next thing you know, you're distracted enough to be clicking on links and away from your email. As soon as you become aware that that has happened, come back to your email. Then the phone's going to ring or you're going to get a text and you're going to be you're going to want to go look at it. And I'm going to say that awareness, you're just going to bring it back to your email. So there are ways that we can help them strengthen their attention by having them catch themselves when they're distracted. Mm -hmm. And that seems to gain a little traction because then they start to see, oh, okay, so I do have some control and I can strengthen that control, kind of like doing, you know, mental push-ups. I'll sometimes refer to it as. Mm -hmm. It's like being able to stay fully engaged in the task that you're doing. And that seems to resonate. Yeah. And then the meditation kind of does a lot of the work as much as my ego would probably like to take credit for it. <laughs> sure, right. Well, And I bet there's a lot of light bulbs going off for people right now when you describe the five-minute email meditation because that's, I mean, that's a very simple way to cultivate attention. Because I think when you demystify the process of becoming conscious or more aware like that, it's mm-hmm. very down-to-earth. I think that's incredibly helpful for people to translate mindfulness through these very simple tactics. And that's how I got into it. It didn't become a very spiritual, deeper practice for me until I was able to understand this aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm still using that type of meditation still every day. I'm trying to find as many inroads for them to find their own path. And usually that is by not even throwing mindfulness around too much. Right. I think even that now tends to get overthrown all over the place. So, you know, getting back to the original question, that is the corporate structure. Mm -hmm. It's rewarding when I get emails from people a year later and they say, I'm still meditating every day. I'm blown away because they haven't reached out to me until then. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice to go a month, spending a month with someone and then having it click and then having them write you a a year later. And and that's sweet. Or or they come to my classes and that's nice as well. But I never really know. It's almost like, I'm sure you get this too, when you teach someone, and then you see them out at a restaurant or, or even a bar and they're looking at you like, is he going to ask me? <laughs> yeah. Is he going to ask me if I've meditated? Which I always say, I'm never going to ask you unless you want to talk about it. Yeah. And then I'll talk your ear off. That's yeah. usually how it goes. Yeah. But, I, don't, I don't quite get that because most of mine happens through the online education, but often you go a long time, you don't know if it's having an impact. And I can relate to what you describe and someone will write to me and They said, I've been doing this and it's working and oh my God, it's actually having this deep impact. And that always 
that has a huge effect on me. Just hearing it is, you like to know that your work is having an impact. Yeah, why you got into it in, in the first place exactly. is to help. Exactly. It's, you want to know that your help is is helping. It's the whole thing. And then if you look at from an educator point of view or, or a student point of view, like a elementary or middle school, a lot of the times what's rewarding is when they tell me what's working, right? A lot mm-hmm. of the times even I'll find the filters on an eight-year-old is, is actually probably the same as the filters on an 80-year-old if I'm in a senior retirement center, where they will be the first ones to educate me on what's not working. Mm. I mean, they, have, they have no filter. They'll just be like, that was awful. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like that. So you kind of learn pretty quick what's working and what's not. Right. My favorite thing is with the kids, I get to spend eight to 10 weeks with them usually. There's a structure to those classes and you get into the habit of we do this circle time where everyone sits in a circle and we train them to notice when they're impulsive or distracted. And we usually do it just by asking general questions. So you teach them what mindfulness is. Mm -hmm. We teach them that mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment in a particular way on purpose in the moment, non-judgmentally. But we kind of dumb it down, not dumb it down, but boil it down to mindfulness is catching yourself before usually you're going to do something that might not be the best choice. With the kids, I'll always ask the first question is, uh, who wants to tell me how they use mindfulness yesterday? Sometimes they get it, not at the beginning, but then they start to understand that their choices is affecting not only their day, but how a teacher teaches. If they can start to catch themselves before they impulsively shout out in class or Mm. stand up and walk to the window, then that we have a better shot at them being able to sustain some type of mindfulness practice. We ask them to notice their bodies when it's not their turn speaking in the round in the circle. So we'll say, mm. I want you to notice how you feel when it's not your turn, how you feel when it's your turn, and how does it feel when it's out, your turn is passed. And you can start to figure out the anxiety in some of the kids, that they're nervous before they get there that they feel really nervous when they're speaking, but they feel relaxed when they go away. Or they may not agree with last simple questions. Like it's usually to provoke somebody that's impulsive. So I'll say, what's your favorite book? And we'll go around the room and someone will say the Harry Potter series or, or, or Divergent. And someone will inevitably think, oh, that's a baby book. And they'll say it. And then your job as, you know, you make it clear that we're just teaching you to catch yourself. Because a lot of the times the kids that are saying that's a baby book, they're not aware they're doing it. Right. So it's more trying to teach them that we're all like that. We're all impulsive, but we can learn to harness that attention and not share it if it's not nice, if Mm -hmm. it's not true, if it's not necessary. The best kind of story to kind of sum up what a kid will say to me that kind of touches on all the aspects of mindfulness is I have these, uh, these two twins, these little girls, they were in third grade. They're actually probably in high school now. They play ice hockey. And one of the girls checked the other girl and she didn't get caught. But when the other girl checked her back, she got caught and put in the penalty box. And while she was in the penalty box, she was crying, she said. And she was so mad. And all she wanted to do is get out of the penalty box because she was going to go punch her sister. (laughs) Yeah, That's what she told me. And she said, but I sat there and I breathed and I did what you said. And when I got out there... I forgot about it and I didn't want to go back to the penalty box. So mm. I kind of forgot about it. And to me, that captures yeah. the sadness, the anger, the not being able to control your emotions to wanting to react to the situation, but taking those times just to slow that out breath yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So you can get your wits about you. And 
I'd like to think that was the meditation, but I'm sure it had something to do with being in the penalty box too. Sure. But to have her come in and articulate that to me is way better than a parent telling me my kid loves getting up at seven o'clock in the morning to come to your meditation class before yeah. school because no kid wants to get up at to- seven o'clock totally, in the morning. <laughs> man. And, and also it's great because whether it was the meditation or not, the thing is she made that connection. She's making a positive reinforcement there in her own brain and her own experience in relationship to meditation, that's very positive. So that's where I get jazzed the most. That's where I kind of geek out on the, Yeah, it's working. I'm making a difference in at least one, making a kid's high school life a little bit easier, fantastic. That's awesome. All right, we're getting towards the end of the interview here, and I'm going to hit you with a couple rapid fire questions. All right, so what's the funniest thing that's happened to you when you've been teaching or meditating? Oh, the funniest thing that's happened to me while I was meditating is your body has a a way of getting rid of physical stress and it does it in different ways. I've had people say they were crying or emotional. I've actually laughed in meditation. Like I won't laugh when I watch a sitcom by myself, but I'll laugh if my wife's with me. But I generally don't laugh when I'm by myself and I found myself laughing during meditation. So I think that's something that happened in, I guess the funniest is I, I won't tell, I won't say who the people are, but I've had people fall asleep. like teachers. Yeah. That we're leading and I, and I know 30 minutes is up and I'm like, oh gosh, he's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that's kind of funny. Yeah. So you have a great name, the Boston Buddha. Can you tell us a little bit where you came up with the name? It's a fantastic brand. Oh, thank you. You know, it's funny. The name, I, I've always said that my wife used to describe me as like a meat and potatoes meditator to her friends or a blue collar Buddha when she was coming up with the name, because she is really the the reason that I'm meditating today. If she didn't give me that book and she didn't support everything I do, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So she came up with the Boston Buddha. Um, It's great. I love it. It's a great brand. It's hard sometimes because people think I'm Buddhist. Um, I always say that from my teachings with John Kabat-Zinn, I say, you know, the best part about the Buddha is that he wasn't seen as like a god or a deity. He was he was celebrated as an example of just somebody normal. Right. Somebody who applied a great deal of discipline to figure out who he was. And he did it with meditation. And this opened his heart, I think, in the same way that it opened mine in a, in a, in a really big way. And so I always say that everybody is the Boston Buddha, because sometimes when people introduce me, it is, you know, I got to embrace it a little bit more, I, I bet. Mm-hmm. Um so that's kind of, my wife kind of started as he's a huge Boston Celtics fan, Red Sox fan. I love everything about the hardworking people of Boston that it kind of stuck. And now it's kind of funny when, you know, I'm out and about and someone will yell, hey, Boston Buddha. I love it. That's a great story. <laughs> In a similar vein, who's your biggest hero? Oh, shoot. That's a, I, I want to say my, my wife. I would say my wife is my biggest hero because uh, to me, she is a... A superhero. She really is. I call her my Wonder Woman because she is not a mean bone in her body. She's incredibly talented, smart, and has been through a lot herself mm. and able to manage in her own way how to deal with the stuff that she's had to go through in her life. To me, that's a definition of a, a hero, someone that can, over, can overcome that and come out on the other side and still be as giving I guess my daughter reminds me, my son reminds me of that. And I would say my my dad and my parents as well. I think family, if it wasn't for my great, great grandfather, going through the hardships of losing his parents in the Irish famine. Yeah. And then finding his way to America 
and I wouldn't be here. And I, I try to learn and teach that to my kids too, that life isn't always happy. That there are ups and downs and we can learn to navigate that a little bit better. So yeah, I would say all those people, if I can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I'll give it to you. So what book has had the biggest impact on you? You you, oh, you might have already betrayed that so in the beginning. I, but. I said that at the beginning, but like I said, it's not a book. I like to recommend books, particularly if they're yeah, a that's great. meditator. And for me, books that resonate the most with some of my students are Secrets of Meditation by David G., obviously. John Kabat-Zinn, anything he writes. He has a Mindfulness for Beginners that has an awesome guided CD at the end that I love. Real Happiness by Sharon Salzberg is another one that people will tell me that her teachings find a way into my mouth, which is incredibly flattering. And mm. at the same time, that means I'm definitely using her a lot. But probably the book that I go back to the most is another one of those simple books by Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements. Mm. You know, have you read that book? I have not. I've heard, obviously, a lot about it. It's such a great book, and it really is distilling the same way I try to do with meditation, he does with life and, you know, Toltec wisdom. And, and it's four simple agreements. The first one is be impeccable with your word. So we want to know what we're saying. Be in the moment when we're thinking before we speak. Don't take anything personally. Other people's no's are never about you. They're always about them. Ask questions or his way he says it is don't make assumptions, which I liken to ask questions. If you ask questions, then you can notice your own reactions to the questions. If you think it's a stupid question, notice your ego being offended over something you thought I had control over. Mm -hmm. And the fourth one is always do your best. And my best at eight o'clock in the morning and 1130 in the, in the morning is better than seven, eight o'clock at night. That's awesome. Everyone, just so you know, I am going to include links to all these references that Andy's mentioning in the show notes. So you'll be able to follow up on that. Last question, Andy, for all the new meditators listening, do you want to offer any piece of parting advice? I would say if you want to meditate and you want to sustain a practice, I guess the biggest question you need to ask yourself on the days you don't feel like sitting is why am I meditating in the first place? I would say get real clear on why you want to meditate so you can figure out what practice will probably work best for you. And then like you and I were talking about, stick with it. Just stick with it and trust the stranger on the podcast that says, if you stick with it for 30 days, that you will see results and that you'll think you'll have thoughts. You're supposed to have thoughts. You will fall asleep because you're training your body to do something new. So for the first month, your body will say, when Andy's eyes are closed, you must be trying to sleep. And you're just trying to teach to your physiology that you're meditating. So you'll fall asleep. You'll have thoughts. You'll become more aware. And then overall, I could sum up my meditation process in two words, surrender to the moment and go into every meditation with a sense of innocence like you've never done it before. Awesome. Andy, thank you so much. It's been great to have you on the show. It's been so great talking to you, Morgan. I really, really enjoyed this. I think I might've been all over the map for you, but I really enjoyed uh, spending this time with you. Not at all. It's been great. And I can't believe this much time went by and, and I, I think everyone's going to get a lot out of it. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed my interview with the Boston Buddha. If you want to work with Andy or learn more about his work, you can check out his website over at thebostonbuddha.com. And as I'm sure you could tell, Andy's doing some incredible work. And you can also email him directly through his site. It's a real resource. 
I really encourage you to go over there and check it out. You can also find the link to Andy's site and the links to the books he mentioned in the show notes of this episode. You can find the show notes over at aboutmeditation.com slash podcast. And of course, if you enjoyed today's show, it'd really help us out if you head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. That'd be a huge help. Thank you so much. And today's show is brought to you by our free How to Meditate mini course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons at aboutmeditation.com. And finally, if you've listened to this show before, you know I like to end each episode with a quote. And today, I thought we'd go ahead and repeat that wonderful quote from Viktor Frankl, which Andy cited earlier in the show. Here we go. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. 